It felt like, oh, this is nice again. This is so wonderful to just potter around the kitchen and dream about dishes and what, how I'm going to put things together. And I felt like pretty quickly after that, I was already regained regaining a lot of that like creative energy and and love for food and cooking which I've always had it just kind of slipped away for a little bit today on dirty linen we are returning to the joys of chatting to Danielle Alvarez who was recently on the podcast well I thought it was recently and then Danielle I went back and checked the date and it was October 2021 Uh, yes oh my god two years ago ridiculous and it was we spoke on the eve of Sydney coming out of that word starting with L that we don't want to talk about and you're about to reopen Fred's and yeah we were just in a completely different headspace yeah my god so much has changed so much has changed in your career and in our world and in lots of ways um actually why don't you just I mean give us a little summary of what has changed what you're doing at the moment Okay, so at that stage, we would have reopened the restaurant and, you know, been super busy. And I remember that being, you know, a challenging time for a lot of reasons. But I think coming coming back into the restaurant and just thinking about what the future would hold for me, I was starting to feel like I'd lost a lot of the energy that made me great in that role and I was feeling like I didn't have the creative juices flowing anymore and maybe a bit of burnout um, with everything that had happened and so I think it was in 2022 that I would have resigned from my role at Fred's and left the restaurant in May of that year so it's been about a year and a half now that I have not been the head chef at Fred's and uh, a lot has changed for me personally, professionally. I've written another cookbook, which is now out in the world. And I've also, um, I've been working freelance, um, working, doing different kinds of events and pop-ups and collaborations, as well as taking on the role of culinary director of the event spaces of the Sydney Opera House. So lots of stuff going on. Yeah, that's a lot. Um and yeah, it's it's only in the last like 10 minutes just before we got on this call that I, you know, realized how long it had been since we'd spoken on the show and that, you know, but it is interesting to hear you talk about that, that burnout and, you know, the, the, I guess so many chefs came out of, you know, all the ups and downs, a lot of downs of that period. And it was hard to regain momentum. And I suppose things did look really different. And it was such a time of questioning that a lot of, you know, trajectories, careers that people could have thought, you know, they sort of kind of knew what was going to happen for the next decade. They, they really changed and shifted, didn't they? Completely. I mean, it's a perfect case in point for me. And I'm not like, you know, I think everything that happened in those years really uh, look, it, it gave us time to stop and think also, and that that changes things. And then coming back out of it, there were so many struggles with, you know, the staffing issues and everything. And I think people forget that sometimes like the managers just has have as much anxiety as everyone else, even if you're spending your entire time consoling others 
you know, who's consoling me sort of feeling. And, and I, I just felt like I just was not my best. And I was, you know, getting short with people getting angry. And I just felt like, you know what, I need to remove myself for, for a bit, take a break, take a step back and just reassess. Wow, that's so interesting, especially because you know, I suppose one of the things that people so appreciate about you is, you know, the love that goes into everything. So it must be really, well, it must have been really confronting to feel that you couldn't be that person that people look to you to be. Well, I just, yeah, I didn't feel like myself, really. Like, um, I just felt like someone who was, you know, just irritable and like, just not exactly like the food, especially when you're cooking with seasonal ingredients, like it's such a labor of love. It's really beautiful. It's really romantic. And you need to actually be feeling all those things to get into the right headspace to produce menus and foods that are fitting of that quality. And, and yeah, I just felt like I didn't have it anymore. (laughs) So how did you regain it? What was the process? Well, actually, I think just, um, having more time to myself, cooking at home a lot, um, while I was writing the next book was uh, crucial to that. I felt like I, I, I didn't really do a lot of cooking as soon as I left the restaurant. Like I, I remember I did a little traveling, I came home, we got a, we got a puppy. So I was like, just, you know, all ra- wrapped up in that world. But then when I got down to writing the book, it felt like, oh, this is nice again. This is so wonderful to just potter around the kitchen and dream about dishes and what, how I'm going to put things together. And I felt like pretty quickly after that, I was already regrain, regaining a lot of that like creative energy and, and love for food and cooking, which I've always had. It just kind of slipped away for a little bit. That's so interesting. So I love the book. It's really beautiful. It's called Recipes for a Lifetime of Beautiful Cooking. I think, you know, a lot of cookbooks cross my desk and I would say, you know, not all of them feel essential uh, or that, you know, the a, a person has put their whole heart into them. But I would say this book really feels like necessary for you, but I think also it would be such a, a great book for anybody to receive. Um, especially I'm thinking about, you know, younger people perhaps with lacking in confidence or a repertoire of dishes, striking out on their own. I think it would be an amazing book to give somebody in those in that situation. But I, I oh, that's, yeah. <laughs> I think that's such a lovely thing to say, Danny. And I, I look, I, I think we tried to write a book. I mean, the, the title is quite loft, lofty, but that actually is something you can use forever like these are not trendy recipes I think there's some good base skill and knowledge that you can take away from the pages but also just inspiration for making things for your everyday for your weekday and then a few things that you'd happily use on weekends to entertain with like I feel like all these recipes I will still be cooking from in 20 30 40 years if I'm still here (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you'll still be here now I actually reckon the key to the book and it makes sense given that you know what we started this conversation with uh I reckon the key to the book is on page 230. And so I'm just going to read something. Okay. Uh, so you say... <laughs> I don't have it in front of me. You don't so have don't to. You don't have to. Okay. I'll okay. tell you. If the goal of eating out is to find something you can't have at home, shouldn't part of eating at home be cooking things you can't find when you're out? Perhaps we chefs have been robbing you of flavors and textures you haven't had the chance to love. That's a shame. 
So interesting, especially for this chef who needed to step away from the professional kitchen. Tell me about that. Dig into that for us. Well, I think that there's two parts to that. So I've co-written this book with um, my beautiful friend, Libby Travers, who is such a brilliant wordsmith. And, you know, we had a lot of conversations about the merits of things that you make at home that you wouldn't find in restaurants like I'm thinking specifically about the slow cooked green beans with tomatoes in the book, which are like, you know, a pretty classic Greek Mediterranean thing. But in that, I think a lot of restaurants would think, oh, you know, it's brown. It doesn't look nice. It's like it, it doesn't seem all that exciting. And to me, that is like the essence of home cooking. It's not there to be like beautifully presented on a plate. It's just delicious. It's nutritious. It's it's all the things that I want when I'm eating at home. And then the other side of that is I think there's a lot of food that you can do at home better than you can have in a restaurant. And a couple of things that spring to mind are like risotto and dried pasta. Um, Because oftentimes, you know, dried pasta is a hard thing to do in a restaurant because it takes so long to cook that restaurants don't really allow for, you know, the 12 to 14 minute cook time on them. So it's a perfect thing to do at home and you get that wonderful chewy texture that you can only get from dried pasta. And risotto is another one that is meant to be cooked like start to finish and onto the plate and into your mouth. And if you try to get it at a restaurant, they'll have to par cook it because it takes like 30 to 40 minutes. And I would only ever risotto order risotto from a restaurant that specifically did risotto. And they say on the menu, please allow 40 minutes or whatever it is to cook it because then I know it's going start to finish. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and you, you talk about those restaurant vegetable techniques like blanching and shocking, which you do see in some recipes for home cooks. But do you think that they, they should have a place at home? I'm Like I'm sure the only thing that I do that with are things like fresh peas because um, if you don't chalk them, they go like really wrinkly and weird. But for most everything in the, in the quantities that I'm doing at home, I don't bother with that. Like if I am going to blanch something because I want it still crunchy in a salad or something like that, I'll just let it um, cool off and dry in a pan because I think also sometimes that shocking side of it rinses off a lot of flavor that um, should be stuck onto whatever it is that you're blanching. So it's a step that I always skip that and I don't have an ice maker, so I can't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, you do talk about, these dishes that taste better at home, but you also speak very lovingly about some restaurants that you've eaten at or worked at that are, I suppose, the exceptions that prove the rule. I mean, can Mm. you talk about those? Yeah, so the the couple that we've written about in the book, I think really share this common thread of like, they make food that you wish you could have at home or, you know, but then they bring it to these lovely restaurant spaces. So one of them is one that I experienced right after leaving Fred's, which was La Merenda in Nice. Um, Dominique Lestanc is the chef and he, I think, had a two Michelin star restaurant, was really quite famous and um, gave all that up to open a really tiny, I think it's 20, 18 or 20 seats restaurant in Nice. And he cooks the most most beautiful Niçoise food that was the food of his childhood. And you really feel that, that it's like family recipes, really authentic. Um, 
And this was food that actually I was familiar with cooking it in California at Chez Panisse, where I spent many years cooking. But to be able to go there and have it made by a Frenchman in his hometown with the local ingredients was just, you know, a revelation. Um, but Chez Panisse was built on that idea of taking home farmhouse type food and bringing it into a restaurant, which at the time when it opened 55 years ago was pretty revolutionary. And um, it's continued to do that ever since like those menus are so classic the recipes and the food that I learned to cook there um I will cook forever and and I totally cherish that experience as one of the best cooking and eating experiences of my life and the other restaurant that I talk about with so much love is Sean's in Bondi because I just adore Sean's cooking I adore the feel and the look of that restaurant like you know, he's like your quirky uncle that just makes the best food. And I feel so lucky that I live in a town that has a restaurant like that. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, it is such a special place and so personal. But it's it's really interesting to think about this idea that restaurants, of, of restaurants that create to some degree a homely experience. I mean, they're still restaurants, aren't they? I mean, what is it? Uh, yeah, I mean, what is it? Let's talk about it from your perspective as a chef. Like, what is the difference in the way that you can feel about cooking in a restaurant, even when it's a really small one and in a home? I think there is, um, in, a, in all of those places, you get the feeling that they're doing everything from scratch every day, which I'd say in a lot of, um, in the restaurants that don't give me that feeling, it's because... I can almost um, taste that like, like I, I can't say that I can actually taste that, but that, you know, things are made en masse, like on one day of the week, and then they're kind of divided up uh, like sauces or something, for example, for different days. And um, it's like this thing of mise en place where something has sort of been sitting there all day. And a lot of these places, I just feel like they make everything really fresh in the moment, which is how you would have it at home, right? You'd go grocery shopping, you'd go to the market, you pick things up and you'd make the pasta for that, for that lunch or for that dinner in that day. Um, I think there's also an element of the presentation that I really love in that it's not overly constructed or thought out. It's really just, or stylized, it's really just food on a plate. And I think that is, um, that's a, a really big part of that that I love as well. Mm, and I think, yeah, I, it. let's talk about Sean's. Like, you know, you've got those little personal touches that show a lot of forethought, like, you know, the oyster shells um, that the salt is in or just, I don't know, all the little touches around the room, those details. So, yeah, it's got that sort of, I suppose, premeditation but then the food can be really in the moment. Um, yeah, it's very, it's very delightful. Um, there are a lot of t times in the book where you, you speak about, you know, the pleasure of cooking, but also the the mental well being that can come with cooking. I mean, did you find that? Did you find that really important at this, you know, for this particular book these past couple of years? Yeah, well, I mean, like I said, I think it really, that cooking at home time really brought me back 
to myself. Like, uh, you know, food and cooking for me is my love language. It's how I express a lot of feelings for the people around me. It's like, you know, one thing that I feel like I'm okay at and I'd like to share that. Um, But also I really enjoy quiet time in the kitchen by myself. I like to put on some music. Um, I think doing things with my hands while I'm sort of working out things in my head is really healthy for me. Um, And I suspect a lot of people also feel the same, even if they think they're not great cooks and they're not this or they're not that. We put a lot of pressure on ourselves to constantly be um, putting up these like, (laughs) you know, super tasty flavor bomb dishes all the time to our friends and family. But actually it's the simple things, like even just putting, you know, scrambling an egg and putting that on toast or, um, boiling some pasta and having that with sizzled garlic, olive oil, and lemon. Like these are really simple things we can cook for ourselves, but it's, I think it's healthy and important that we're trying to cook for ourselves at least a couple of nights a week. I think those simple, those simple dishes can teach you so much about produce and about flavor and about balance. Like they give you skills and yeah, ways through when you, you know, you tackle more complicated dishes. Yeah. I mean, definitely you have to start with foundational stuff. So like there's a couple of really simple egg dishes in the book, um, a very simple frittata for one, you know, if you're not cooking for, for others, if you're just trying to learn to cook for yourself, that I recommend that as a really good place to start. And, and as you say, like, take those skills, pay attention, taste what you like, taste what you don't like. And then um, as you move forward in your cooking journey, you'll, you you just need to start somewhere, but that'll help you find what direction you want to go and help you figure out what you like. Yeah, I love that. And uh, you've got an egg rule, which I also really like. Speaking of frittata, you say if you, if you want to know what a person is like, have them cook you an egg. And for, for me, I then had these images of just like furious people <laughs> whipping eggs. And <laughs> what, what, what do you think of when you think about that? Well, look, my favorite way, and I say this in the book, is I love a fried egg with like a runny yolk, but a very like set white and kind of crispy browned edges. Um, But then, you know, I think about other people that I'm sure would love really runny scrambled eggs and they love that kind of like richness of that texture and that flavor. Um, some people really love poached eggs and, and I, I don't know what the like characteristics or personality types based on what egg you like there are, but I'm sure there's something to it. I reckon there's a whole star sign system that we, (laughs) we haven't discovered yet that tells us all about it. Yeah, totally. You know, you're also culinary director at the Sydney Opera House, as you mentioned, which is definitely not cooking frittata for one. Um, You know, given everything we've been talking about, how do you tackle this, um, yeah, cooking at scale again? Yeah, so it's, um, I'm cooking in the events um, side of the, of that iconic Australian building. And it's certainly a challenge. Like, so I've written menus for people that want to have functions in there's three different spaces that you can hire out there to do, you know, birthdays, anniversaries, weddings, corporate things, etc. And I've written menus for all of those spaces, including canapes and, and um, you know, uh, menus that you um, have seated. And 
I really had to rethink a lot of the food that I would typically serve in a restaurant that we serve, you know, two plates at a time or whatever. And I've had to think about how you can serve something that is as delicious for 100, 200, 300 people at a time. And I'm really appreciating and enjoying that skill set. And I'm working with the team there to fine tune all of that. And it's it's cool. It's interesting. I, I like thinking that I can be a part of these huge, important moments in people's lives in some way. And also bringing some of the produce, some of the great Australian produce that I love into the opera house is really cool as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, yeah, we we don't always want to eat at home. We do want to eat event food, food that feels like it's, um, yeah, something we couldn't do and that it's in a different context. Mm. And, and you know, cele- what's the word? Celebratory? Um, because oftentimes those events are around those really, really big moments in, in our lives. What's a killer canapé for a, a celebratory event this summer? Um, well, I, one of my favorites is a little like potato churro. So just like a shoe pastry with a bit of, um, smashed potato in it and serving that with some caviar and creme fraiche. I think that's going to be, I'm writing menu for, uh, New Year's at the opera house at the moment. And that's definitely on there. Um, another one that I love is scallops in the shell with a cafe de Paris butter, um, so you just get really nice scallops, put them in the shell, um, a bit of cafe de Paris butter on top, and then you just bake it and they just come out so, oh, so umami and rich and delicious. Oh, I, I, I'm definitely now wanting to celebrate New Year's Eve at the Opera House, but I don't know if that's going to happen. Um, <laughs> uh, Danielle, you know, there's a bit of your Cuban heritage that comes through in this book, but I feel like in Australia, we really don't know much about Cuban food, how people eat in that part of the world. Can you give me a little 101? Yeah. So um, Cuban food, I think people incorrectly assume is like other food that you'd see in the Caribbean. So highly spiced, highly, you know, lots of chili, coriander, lots of citrus and all that. And it really is not that. It's um, a cuisine that was born from immigrants from Spain um, in like the turn of the century, or at least the Cuban food that I grew up eating. Um, I think it's a culture that has had a lot of change in its in its life um, and a lot of immigration. So there's a, a mix of like Spanish meets African culture cuisine that you would have would have all collided in this tiny island. But so there's a lot of like beans and stews and slow cooked meats and um but then you that collides with plantains and these root vegetables that you can really only find in that part of the world and i think that's that's surprising to a lot of people that we eat like these thick and hearty bean stews so in in the book i have a recipe for fabada which is a very classic spanish stew but the recipe is based on one from my grandmother um and it's just white beans cooked with pork knuckle and morcilla and chorizo and saffron. Um, and then another dish that you'll find in the book is a bistec empanizado, which I thought was something that Australians could really get their head around. It's essentially a schnitzel um, with beef and then served with a really garlicky um, citrusy mojo on top. And my mom's iconic black beans, which are 
in the book. She's very happy that I share that with everyone. Oh, aren't we so lucky? And yeah, I saw the recipe for that moho and I was thinking, well, this basically could go on anything. Oh, and it should go on anything. It's delicious. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You mentioned collaborating with Libby Travers. um, And yeah, as, as a writer who has also collaborated with chefs on cookbooks. I would love to hear more about that process. Mm. Um, why did you want a collaborator? Why did you need a collaborator? And, and what? how did you guys work together? It was my publisher that actually suggested it for me, I think. Um, and I hadn't actually, I hadn't considered having a, um, a collaborator on the writing part of the book. But when she said it, I thought, you know what, that's a great idea because then I can really just focus on the recipes, we can talk through things. I really like collaboration. It's probably the thing that I miss most from the restaurant world. Um, I think it's the best way to sort of fine tune ideas and really like focus them in a cohesive way that makes sense. And when she also suggested Libby, I just thought, oh my God, yes. Like Libby knows, she's my best friend. Like she knows me better than anyone. She'll be able to get Um, you know, the things that are important out of me that maybe I don't even notice as are important. And it was just the most wonderful time. Like we would, I would write recipes and she lives in France. So I would write recipes during the day. I'd send notes over, you know, she'd wake up in the morning, which would be sort of the end of my day. We'd quickly catch up about what was happening, what she was thinking, what I was thinking. And then I'd wake up the next day to some beautiful words from her. And um, it was just the best, like, six months of my, I think, cooking career, maybe, or my my cookbook writing career. It It was just so much fun. Wow, that sounds so great. Almost like you were writing in a dream. Totally. Like I, I'm sort of like as I'm sleeping, things are happening and then I wake up and it's all manifested and it's it's all beautiful and makes sense. Totally. Oh, I love that. Um, so, Danielle, I just want to ask you finally something that really caught my eye right towards the end of the book and it is the octopus question. Uh, how did an octopus recipe just sneak into the book. <laughs> <laughs> so we look, I, I think there's over 100 recipes in the book. And I think I probably wrote like oh, over 125. And we really had to call it down to the, um, you know, I think the recipes that will teach you something are an interesting accessible flavor combination. Um, but that point about accessibility is particularly important to me in this book. I wanted you to be able to see something that you like and go to the grocery store and make it like immediately if you wanted to. Um, there's probably only a couple of things that are highly seasonal that you can't get year round, but most things you can, especially because a lot of the recipes are based on pantry staples. Um, But the octopus, I thought, was something that I get a lot of questions about, how do I do this? I think it's intimidating for people. They like it. They want to have it. They want to cook it. They just don't know how. But I didn't really feel like it suited the brief for this book around accessibility. Um, So we didn't want to make a big recipe about it. But towards the end, we just thought, I'm just going to leave a little nugget here of how people can do it, the simple version. And then from there, you can do whatever recipe you want to do with it. Awesome. And so, you know, last time we spoke, you were on the verge of a bit of burnout you did what you needed to do like how are you feeling about food cooking now 
So positive, like so excited. I feel like the future is bright. I, I feel like I've got a lot of my energy back and I'm doing this great big book tour now, which I planned for myself a couple months ago. And I just, I'm so happy to be talking to people face to face and talking about food, which is what I love, sharing stories about, you know, inspiration about what other people do with with their cooking at home. I love connecting that way. So I'm happy that I've got to do that. And I think I've realized, you know, for myself, that sort of freedom to just decide what I want to do and where I want to go is super important to me. Um, and I think having that now has just brought back a lot of life to me. What do you, do you have any advice for people who might also feel like they're feeling a bit burnt out, maybe, you know, on the edge a little bit, not being the person that they want to be, but they really don't see a way clear to leaving their job. You know, they, they need yeah. it. They need to stay there. Like what could people do to just, you know, f ground themselves a little bit? I mean, I think f firstly, you need to have the confidence to say it out loud. You need to be able to, whether you're sharing it with like a close confidant, a friend, a family member, whatever, you need to be able to say, this is how I'm feeling. I'm not sure what to do. And the not knowing is, is totally fine. Like I was in a spot where I didn't really know what was going to come next. I did not have, I didn't have work lined up. I didn't have anything. Luckily I had like enough of a savings to be able to make that huge leap and just hope that it would be okay. But that's not the reality for everyone. So I think talk about it. You never know what advice someone that you talk to will have for you. Maybe they have a, an idea that you hadn't thought of. Um, so saying it out loud, number one, and then B, do the things that bring you joy. For me, that's like slowing down and cooking in my home kitchen. Um, for you, that could be, I don't know, going hiking, spending time outdoors, etc. Like if you're upset, your energy might be a little bit depleted, but you have to find the headspace to be able to do the things that will give you the energy back. And then I think, look, if you do those things, I think the, the answers will come to you. Beautiful. Love it. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. It's really wonderful to catch up. I guess we'll just have to do a podcast every two years and see what's <laughs> happened. <laughs> I know. Let's see what's going on in um, October of 2025. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, so congratulations on Recipes for a Lifetime of Beautiful Cooking. Um, I highly recommend this book. Um, thanks, Danielle. Enjoy getting it out there in the world. Thanks, Danny. So happy to have been here. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This.